The following podcast is a repost of the first two episodes of a series which we did with Professor David Engelsmer in the summer of 2023. The subject of this series is marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We intend to repost the third and fourth episode next Friday, and then, Lord willing, we plan to post a newly recorded follow-up Q&A on January 26 and February 2. We are thankful for the continued support and encouragement of our listeners, and it is our prayer that you are edified by the content which we produce. Thank you for listening to this episode. My name is Josh Harris, and I am joined by my co-host, Jeff Carlsbeek. Hi, Jeff. How are you today? Hi, Josh. I'm well. We've got an important subject to talk about today. Uh, So, Jeff, why don't you tell our listeners uh, what we'll be talking about? We'll be discussing marriage. Uh, with the express goal of talking about what God has revealed regarding marriage. In the world in which we live and in the Christian church today, there are many opinions and assumptions regarding marriage. I think it's safe to say that it's every believing child of God's experience, no matter what church or denomination they are members of, we want to know what our Lord says regarding a certain subject. Yeah, absolutely. And and to add to that as well, society itself makes a mockery of what marriage is itself. And we are also susceptible within the church to the errors of the world. So it's really important that we that we have a good, clear understanding of the subject. Um, so to help us understand it, we're joined by Professor David Engelsma today to talk about this subject. So welcome, Prof. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family? It struck me when you young men came on the scene this afternoon to set this conference up that I am a son of Hope Protestant Reformed Church. My grandparents, Inglesma, and my great-grandmother were instrumental in the organization and formation of that church back in the 1920s. I have been a minister in the Protestant Reformed Churches for just about 60 years. I spent 25 years as pastor of two congregations, and then for the next 20 years, I served as professor of theology in the Protestant Reformed Seminary. So I've been a minister in the Protestant Reformed Churches and ordained minister for just shy of 60 years. I'm the father of nine children and the grandfather, my wife tells me, of 30-odd grandchildren and have been retired since 2008. But I've kept on working, especially writing. I've written a number of books. That keeps me busy. Yeah, regarding those books, you've authored at least two books which explain the scripture regarding marriage. For the sake of our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about your ministry and pastoral experience regarding marriage? The special interest that I have come to have in marriage, and particularly the writing of some books on marriage are due largely to my experience in the first congregation of which I was a pastor. That congregation did not have a background in the Protestant Reformed denomination. and In fact, the congregation had not been organized as a congregation very long before I got there, and what background they did have in marriage was erroneous, so that immediately upon my taking up my pastorate in that congregation, I was faced with serious sins and problems with regard to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so extreme were those difficulties that within a year or two after I was pastor of that congregation, I had 
an experience one evening that I was convinced that the congregation was going to disband. And I was alone in my study and prayed, and my prayer was, the congregation will probably go down, by that I meant be, dis be uh, dissolved and scattered, but if we go down, we're going to go down with the word of God. That was a kind of answer by God himself to my deep concerns and even fears. That occasioned a series of sermons on Sunday evening of about 12 or 15 in number, in which I preached a series of sermons on just about everything the Bible teaches concerning marriage, as well as divorce and remarriage. The problem in the church at the time was the impermissibility of divorce and remarriage of one of the prominent members of the congregation. But I preached a series of sermons on divorce and on marriage, including divorce and remarriage, what the Bible has to say about divorce and remarriage. And the result was that the congregation did not dissolve, but it came to acknowledge and confess the truth of marriage just as strongly as any traditional Protestant Reformed congregation. And it was that series of 12 or 15 sermons that I put into printed form and became the first book that I've written on marriage, Marriage, the Mystery of Christ and the Church, which has found its way into many circles. I was told a while back that it's now in its third printing. The next book that stands out is devoted strictly to marriage was uh, a book on 1 Corinthians 7 with Matthew 19, one of the most prominent passages in all of the Bible on the subject of marriage. So those would be the two main books and the explanation of them. Yeah, and, and also to note as well, for those who are interested in those books, um, to marriage, the mystery of Christ and his church, and better to marry, which Prof just mentioned, um, they are published by the Reformed Free Publishing Association, uh, often shortened to uh, the RFPA. And if you want to find them and get them for yourself, uh, you can do so at rfpa.org. One more item before we begin. Uh, if our listeners have questions uh, that come up during the discussion, you may email them to hoperwc at gmail.com. We might be able to put together another episode where we have Professor Engelsma answer these questions that come in. So again, the email is hoperwc at gmail.com. Yeah, and we really appreciate hearing feedback from our listeners, so please feel free to get in touch if you've got anything at all. Um, so, Professor, you've had to deal with this subject in your ministry, which has led you to seek direction from the Lord by careful study of the scriptures regarding marriage. Um, and this is our interest as well. So would you be willing to give us a definition of marriage that you derive from God's word to really help us have a foundation of understanding what it is? Here follows a working definition of marriage. As brief as I could possibly make it without compromising the truth of marriage, marriage is the divine ordinance for the human race consisting of a uniquely intimate relationship between one man, a male, and one woman, a female, they become one flesh, for the life of the two, which relationship God instituted as the outstanding symbol of the covenant union between Jesus Christ and his church. 
Okay, Professor, by your definition, you are saying that God tells us that he instituted marriage. It says marriage is the divine ordinance. Can you show us that marriage is not a man-made ordinance? That question, of course, is fundamental to everything that the Christian must believe and that I will have to say about marriage this afternoon. That it is a divine institution does indeed mean that God instituted marriage. And when God institutes something, it has authority, a binding authority. The revelation that God instituted marriage is the concluding section of Genesis chapter 2. After he had created the man, Adam, God saw that it was not good that the man be alone. There was something unsatisfactory about the aloneness of Adam. It was a deficiency. He was not complete. And God himself says there that he would make and help meet for him, a helper who was suitable to him to provide for his lack and need. And then God caused Adam to fall asleep, took one of his ribs, and fashioned the female, Eve, out of that rib of Adam. And then God himself said that, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. All of that proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that marriage is the institution of God. And that's basic to everything else that the Bible has to say in the rest of Scripture, and it has plenty to say in the rest of Scripture. When I was going over the biblical testimony to marriage years ago, in my series of sermons and in the book that resulted, it struck me how much the Bible has to say upon marriage. It would take a long time to list all of the passages in Scripture that have something important to say about marriage. But both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in virtually every passage that refers to and gives instruction about marriage, there is explicit reference back to God's institution of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. All that the Bible has to say about marriage hinges on the Genesis 2 account, depends on it, and applies it. For example, in Matthew 19, one of the important New Testament passages on marriage, when the Pharisees came with a question about the permissibility of divorce, and notably because they wanted to tempt him, their question was not a sincere request for information or instruction, and they brought up the fact that Moses tolerated a man putting away his wife, then Jesus responded, from the beginning it was not it was not so, but God made them one flesh. He quoted from Genesis 2, so that that passage concerning the institution of marriage in Genesis 2 was authoritative for our Lord Jesus Christ himself. What he taught about marriage, and he taught more about marriage in the passage that I've just referred to, was based upon and in harmony with the account of the institution of marriage in Genesis 2. God's institution of marriage was authoritative and fundamental. So another thing, we're, we're assuming then too that Scripture is the infallible Word of God for everyone. The point that you just made is, is particularly important with regard to the subject that we're discussing, the subject of marriage. In my 25 years as a pastor in two churches, and even later on when I've been called upon to give marital counseling 
I could not count the number of times that a man or a woman has confronted me with circumstances that in themselves would lead me to advise get a divorce as quickly as possible. It seemed so hopeless, and the marriage was so troubled. And I said to myself, and then said to them, if I were making the rules, making the laws, I would advise you to get a divorce tomorrow and find somebody more suitable. But I didn't institute marriage, and I'm not determinative of the laws governing marriage. God is. So regardless of your circumstances, God says you stay together, reconcile with each other, and maintain your marriage. So this matter of God's institution of marriage and making the laws concerning the practice of marriage, that it's divine, that's important practically. And I may add, if we married persons are honest with ourselves, probably more than once in our marriage because your wife and yourself are two sinful people who can hurt each other, when the thought comes up, can I continue to live with this man or can I continue to live with this woman, there comes to our rescue the truth, God brought us together. God is the insti- God has instituted our marriage. God requires and calls us to live together, to confess our sins and make peace with each other. So this matter of the authority of the instruction of the Bible about marriage is practically important to all married persons, I would say, in the church. We're brought together by God. And I've said that to more than one married couple. In my pastoral ministry, as I said, I had occasion more than once to deal with serious marriage problems, as every pastor does when they talk. And that's happened frequently. It's obvious that they want me to say, your circumstances are so dire that you probably ought to think about separating. And they would say, we made a mis-, some would say, even we made a mistake when we married each other. I would remind them, you made a vow to live with each other until death parts you. And they would say, we made a mistake. And my response has been, but God didn't make a mistake. God brought you together. God calls you to stay together and to live together in the right way. So this matter of the institution of marriage by God and the authority he has in determining what our marriages are is of great practical importance in the church too, where thoughts of divorce come up from time to time. I think, yeah, it's a very important point, as you say, to mention that it's God who institutes marriage. It's God who glues two to become one. Um, and the world today would have you say that marriage is instituted by man. And if it's instituted by man, then man can make his own rules and they seek to do away with the fact that it is God's, God's joining. That's the issue. Right. And the result of ignoring that God instituted marriage, it's his ordinance and he makes the rules about his ordinance that explains the dissolution of so many marriages with disastrous consequences for society because God instituted marriage in Genesis 2 before the church was formed. Marriage is not an ordinance just for the church. It's an ordinance for the whole wide world. God created the human race as married. And when it's forgotten and ignored and opposed that God instituted marriage, it's a divine ordinance 
The result is divorce and remarriage, and that's simply catastrophic for society. If I were to answer the question, what's the main problem in the United States today? It wouldn't be the climate or drugs or violence, but it would be the dissolution of marriage in the United States. If marriage is dissolved on a wide scale, society falls apart because God instituted the human race in marriage and family. And marriage, of course, is basic to family. That's why we have scores and hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of young people without the solid environment of a marriage and a family. A father and a mother who love each other and are faithful to each other and raise their family together. The politicians never notice that because many of the politicians are as unfaithful in marriage as the people that they're supposed to, to govern. So this is basic to society, and I haven't said anything yet about the importance of marriage in the family for the church. So, speaking of God's ordinance, then, would it be uh, correct to uh, speak of that ordinance as something that God built into the creation, similar to the law of gravity? In the moral sense of the word, that's certainly true. The human race is built to exist in marriage in the family. That's part of what it means to be human. So similarly to if you defy the law of gravity, you're going to hurt yourself. In Genesis 2, the fundamental passage on marriage, we read that after God created the man on the sixth day of creation, God saw that it was not good that man be alone. There was a deficiency in God's creation. He said so. That was a deficiency that he intended to take care of and to take care of in a short time. But that's the importance of marriage. If the man was alone, marriage not having been instituted yet, something was lacking in the creation that had to be supplied. So you can say, and I do say, that the creation of humanity in the beginning included as an essential aspect marriage. Only when Eve was created and joined to Adam in the first marriage ceremony, which God conducted, and at which he had a short sermon, the last verses of Genesis 2, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother. That was God preaching a marriage sermon. God created humanity as married. And to attack marriage, as not only the world does flamboyantly, but as also the churches are doing too, influenced by the culture as they are, is to attack the essence of humanity. One form of that attack is the breakup of homes so that children are destroyed. That brings to mind another incident in my own ministry. I had a man and a woman come to me because for a long time they'd been living in turmoil and strife. At one point in their marriage, they allowed a trouble to take over. They didn't confess their sin, and that grew. The devil saw his opportunity until finally when they came to see me, they hated each other. They were determined to divorce. They poured out their tale of woe, first one, then the other, expecting me to show by my face that I sympathized with them and went along with their obvious intention to divorce which I didn't do. I stared at them impassively. Finally, the man got the message, and he leaned forward in his chair and said, you don't think we should stay together just for the children, do you? They had a large family. 
Then I smiled for the first time and said, that's the first Christian thing I've heard since you came here and talked. If you don't stay together for any other reason, yes, stay together for the children and in the meantime learn to love each other. Spare them all the misery and shame and sorrow of a breakup of their own home. So that's the importance of marriage for humanity. Right, and in saying that about the children as well, that's just highlighting the fact of how much of an effect and how much of a uh, trial it is upon the children themselves to endure a broken home. Um, and I wonder if I could ask another question as well. You, you mentioned a couple of times already about people who have uh, come to you with their marriage issues. And I wonder, like, what were often the issues in their marriage and, and why why were they having these problems in their marriage? Was there a lack of remembering of the doctrines behind it? Where, where did the, the issues stem from? Occasionally, the cause was adultery on the part of the man or the woman. But that was not the majority of the instances. When I look back over my own uh, marital counseling, I conclude that the majority of cases were cases that really resulted in mistreatment of each other, either physical abuse or mental abuse by name-calling or other actions of which the one or the other did not repent. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. That verse came to my mind time and time again when I was doing marital counseling. It could be a little thing. He spilled at the table or she disobeyed some minor will of his. And that wasn't taken care of. Not the same day and not for weeks and months and it grew. There's a devil who is as interested in destroying marriage in the family as you and I are interested in maintaining marriage in the family. He sees an opening like that, that two who live together so closely sin against each other without repenting, and repenting in a hurry. And as the days and months go by, he separates them further and further and increases their displeasure with each other until it becomes outright hatred. They hate each other. And that's the majority of cases, for me anyway, of marital counseling. It's a sad situation. Yeah. But with God's ordinance as uh, the rule, that has to be the, the only help for such cases. But this this is God's rule and ordinance, not to be disobeyed. Isn't that the way in which we live with our true spiritual husband, Jesus Christ? We haven't touched on that yet. To my mind, the real marriage, the all-important marriage, is the marriage of Jesus Christ and the church, of which our earthly marriages are a symbol. How do we live with Jesus Christ? We confess our sin and are forgiven daily. And if we impenitently go on in our sin against God and against him, our experience is that the divide between him and us becomes wider and wider until we finally find ourselves in extreme spiritual straits. The way is the way of repentance. Husbands and wives have to do that. Far more important than giving sexual instruction is giving spiritual instruction like that to the married members of the congregation. Uh, Can we distinguish uh, marriage as a creation ordinance uh, rather than a church ordinance, like baptism would be one example of a church ordinance versus uh, marriage as a creation ordinance? I know... The Roman Catholic Church, they have marriage as a sacrament, so it's almost like it's a church ordinance. Marriage is not a sacrament. I point to the fact that marriage was instituted prior to 
the entrance into human life of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. Marriage belongs to creation, and that's why it's an ordinance for the world as well as for the church. And the rule about marriage or the law concerning marriage against divorce and remarriage applies to the world as well as it does to the church. It's not a sacrament, but it is by the will of God or it has become by the will of God an outstanding symbol, undoubtedly the most striking symbol of the spiritual reality of the covenant between Christ and the church. It's as though the Creator has taken marriage and brought it into the sphere of the church so that marriage among believers has a special place in symbolizing the relationship of Christ and the church and also being used by God for the bringing forth of covenant children and the establishment of the environment of a covenant Christian home for the rearing of those children. God has taken that creation ordinance and applied it to the church in a special way and to the life of believers in a special way. It's still not a sacrament, contrary to the teaching of Rome, but it is of special importance and use in the church. I've uh, heard it uh, said too before that uh, there's a contemporary view of marriage and then there's the traditional view of marriage. Can marriage change? There's one proper and authoritative and Christian view of marriage, and that's the view of marriage that is set down plainly and often in the scriptures. In keeping with the ordaining of marriage in Genesis 2, and in line with what the prophet Malachi says in Malachi 2 about marriage, and in keeping with the presentation of marriage in the Song of Solomon, that's a book that's often overlooked when people talk about marriage and the blessed the blessedness of marriage, but in keeping with all that Old Testament doctrine, the New Testament defines marriage and applies the instruction of marriage in keeping with the ordinance of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. In Matthew 19, in Mark 10, in Luke 16, verse 18, in Romans 7, and in 1 Corinthians 7, and those are only some of the passages, the New Testament teaches and exhorts one and only one doctrine of marriage. And that's what I suppose is meant by the reference to marriage as the traditional doctrine of marriage. But then the traditional doctrine of marriage is a tradition that the church is bound to observe until the world ends. There is no place for a new doctrine of marriage. A new doctrine of marriage by virtue of the word new is an erroneous doctrine of marriage if it departs from, and insofar as it departs from the doctrine of marriage laid down in the Gospels, in Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7. That traditional, authoritative, biblical doctrine of marriage is one man, and we have to emphasize man nowadays, so far has society fallen. The biblical doctrine of marriage is one male and one female brought together by God in this most intimate relationship for life, so that the only dissolution of that marriage bond, I may have opportunity to come back to this, notice I said bond, I didn't say contract, And that's significant. There's only one biblical doctrine of marriage that the church has to observe in all ages and among all peoples. I think you hit the nail on the head by saying that as well. I think some might seek to excuse their uh, sinful relationships 
by trying to do away with the Old Testament, of Genesis 2. But the fact is that the New Testament backs up and refers back to Genesis 2 time and time again. So we cannot take a different view on marriage. There, there is one view to be had on marriage. And, and again, that is God's view, uh, which is expressed throughout scriptures. And the Bible itself talks about marriage as a mystery. And I was wondering if you'd be able to um, explain to us and to our listeners what uh, this mystery is and how we should interpret that. Leading up to my answer to that question, what Ephesians chapter 5 toward the end means when it calls marriage the mystery, there are, in my judgment, three related but distinct phases of the biblical truth of marriage. The first and fundamental is the relationship between Christ and the church, which the Reformed faith, in keeping with Scripture, calls the covenant of grace. Christ is married to the church, and he's married to the church according to God's eternal appointment of that relationship. Then, in the second place, marriage, the phase, there's a phase of marriage that consists of the instruction of the New Testament about the relationship of a man and a woman in the church in marriage. The ordinance of marriage that you and I live in if we're married. That's a phase of the truth of marriage. When God was appointing Christ in his eternal decree as the husband of the church in the covenant of grace, it's not as though God said, I'm going to create Adam and Eve as married, and now I wonder what I can appoint as a picture of that, and then he appointed the gospel truth of the covenant. But the truth is that God first determined the marriage of Christ and the church and then, so to speak, asked himself, what now can I create and ordain as a picture, a lively, strong picture of the relationship between Christ and the church? And he decided on earthly marriage between a man and a woman. So that would be a phase, the creation ordinance of Genesis 2. And the third phase of marriage would be the marriage among us as two Christians marrying who are one in the faith. Oh, I've forgotten your question, so let me ask you <laughs> the, to repeat that. The, the question was uh, with regards to the term mystery and how it is used in the Bible. How how should we interpret that that term? Um, I mean, you use that in the title of your book on marriage. Uh, how may that term mystery be applied to marriage? That description of marriage is found in the last part of Ephesians 5. Paul is comparing earthly marriage in the church between believers with the relationship of Christ and the church. And then at the conclusion of his description of earthly marriage as a man's loving his wife and the wife's submission to her husband, Paul says in a kind of exclamation, this is a great mystery. And you would think that he's referring to the relationship of a man and a woman in marriage because he's been emphasizing that. And there is something mysterious about that union that we become one flesh with another human being is mysterious, difficult to explain. You really can only experience that in marriage rather than fully explain it. Anyway, Paul exclaims, this is a great mystery. And right at the point where you think he's referring to earthly marriage, he says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That's the great mystery, the union of Christ and the church. And at the in the second part of Ephesians 5, that's really the main topic. He's not so much talking about earthly marriage as he is teaching about the spiritual relationship of Christ and the church. 
That's the great mystery. And that relationship between Christ and the church is a mystery in that it's hidden, unknowable, except that God has made it known. God has revealed it so that we do know this great mystery of Christ and the church. That's the idea. We would never be able to discover that on our own. It has to be made known to us by a special revelation through the gospel, which is what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 5. So the main subject in Ephesians 5, which is one of the main chapters in the Bible on marriage, the main subject is not earthly marriage of a Christian man and a Christian woman, as we might think, especially because it's often preached or spoken on at marriages. The main subject at the end of Ephesians 5 is the union of Christ and the church. And God created marriage or ordained marriage to be a picture, a symbol of Christ and the church. Interesting. So that would be one of the purposes of God in instituting marriage. And he did that to reflect Christ and his church even before the fall. That's correct. Which is, as you've suggested, evidence that the fall was ordained by God, decreed by God, sinful as it was on our part. There's no Christ apart from the fall. That also is indicative of the fact that the salvation we now enjoy with Christ is better than the good life that Adam and Eve lived in paradise. The true marriage with all its pleasure and delight in the Christian man and the Christian woman begin to experience that in their marriage too. It's by no means all fighting. There's a joy in earthly marriage between a Christian man and a Christian woman that can't compare with the delight and joy and blessedness of the union we have with Christ in the spiritual marriage. Can you show us some of the um, important truths about marriage from Genesis 2 then? God created everything, and then each time he said he saw that it was good, and that's imperfection. So how, how can it be that in perfection, God said it's not good before sin? God said that it was not good that the man be alone when Adam alone was on the scene. That was before Eve was created. And in order to indicate that the creation of Eve completed the creation of man so that it would be good for man to live. That is, God wasn't admitting defeat, but he was paving the way for the next act of his in creation, the creation of Eve, and showing that the creation of Eve and the giving of Eve to Adam, and that's another aspect of the passage, God brought Eve to Adam to be his wife. So that's another aspect of the original marriage ceremony. God was the officiant, and God brought his creature, Eve, the woman, to Adam to be Adam's wife. And I would say that the outstanding feature of the Word of God concerning marriage, the outstanding feature of marriage that's emphasized in what God says about marriage at the end of Genesis 2, is the intimacy, the fellowship that comes out, especially in the phrase, one flesh. They became one flesh, such a union as there's now not two fleshes, but one flesh, which does not only refer to the body of the man and the woman, although that's certainly included, but also the psychological aspects of male and female. 
The psychology of a man is different from the psychology of a woman. The soul of a man is different from the soul of a woman in that they have their own distinctive features and the union of the female attributes with the male attributes is part of the one flesh. So that intimacy, the the oneness, I think, is the outstanding feature of that word of God at the end of Genesis chapter 2. And that's what Christ refers to and quotes in Matthew 19 as well. That enters into the matter of divorce. In the final analysis, divorce is not only wrong, it's impossible. God joins the male and the female together in marriage, and man cannot dissolve that union. He mayn't, mayn't try, but he can't do it. Only God can dissolve a marriage. And I would say that even for God, it takes some doing. Only death, which is extreme, as we all know from a certain kind of experience, only death can separate what God has joined together. Death is in God's hands, so only God can separate what he has joined. So that union is not a activity, then. That's, that's a state of being, almost. That's correct. It's built in. Yeah. There's a certain experience of that. No matter how young you are when you're married, you feel that oneness. Something mysterious about the earthly marriage, too. The great mystery of Ephesians 5 refers to the union of Christ and the church, but there's something mysterious regarding earthly marriage as well, that two individuals are joined as closely as they are in marriage, carries something mysterious with it. And the older you get, under God's blessing, the closer that union becomes, so that married people who've been living together, Christian people now who've been living together a long time, cannot envision living without the husband or the wife. Two natures become one unity. Uh, it, it's, it is the mystery. That is the mystery between a man and a woman. And still, in view of the fact that by nature we're all individualistic, self-seeking, our human nature is opposed to living with another and giving of oneself to another, and allowing another to impinge upon our individuality. Such is God's work of marrying a believer with another believer that you give of yourself to and for the sake of the one you're married to. It's striking to me that when when talking about one flesh, God never refers to a a woman-child relationship as one flesh. And there, the child is in the mother's womb for normally nine months. So if there's ever a time where it would seem like they were one flesh, but but never, the, the parent-child relationship is never spoken of as one flesh. And you have referred to an extraordinarily close relationship, mother and child. But in that marriage ordinance of Genesis 2, it starts out, doesn't it? The man shall leave his father and mother. That's indicative of the fact that the marriage relationship is closer than the parent-child relation. In a way, the man turns his back on his parents. Now, you have to understand that in the right way. But uh, the relationship with his wife supersedes the relationship with his father and mother. And that can be a practical problem if a man marries and still maintains a wrong, close relationship with his parents. Nothing must interfere with 
the marriage relationship. So we kind of talked about um, verse 18. Maybe we could read that. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Obviously, the married woman helps her husband in all kinds of earthly ways. She's a help to her husband in a striking way in the sexual relationship. We mustn't overlook the importance of that aspect of marriage. That's referred to in Genesis 2 at the very end. They were naked and were not ashamed. That's a way of saying the sexual relationship is honorable. It's not, re it's not shameful. It's an important part of the marriage relationship, and it's a perfectly honorable aspect of marriage. And the woman as need not be described as a help to her husband in that regard. But as I suggested earlier, there's more to it than that. There are definite characteristics of masculinity and definite psychological and spiritual characteristics of femininity. And strong as the man is, psychologically and emotionally, he's one-sided if he doesn't have a balancing and helping feminine. And that's applied in a particular way to the raising of children, I think. God intends the human race to come from the union of the man and the woman and intends that, that marriage shall be important for the rearing of the children. And if the man rears children all by himself, there's an overemphasis on rigidity and strong discipline. And the woman balances that or adds to that with a certain softness and gentleness so that the two together do in their rearing of children what the man alone would not be able to do, not able to do very well. I think in saying that as well, I think you, you do a, a nice job of, of showing the importance of the man and the woman in the home. Uh, and when it was the case that Adam was alone, God made him aware of his incompleteness, his his lack, I suppose you could say. And this helps him or helped him rather to uh, be aware of, of Eve's qualities and that was necessary, that she was necessary for his own completion, I guess you could say. That's an astute observation. He had to know himself that he was incomplete without her, so that he did not receive her as a luxury, but as a necessity. And that's how we men must view our wives also. There are men who sin by looking at the wife as kind of an appendage, not really necessary. He can use her but she's not necessary for the marriage or for the family, and that's a dreadful mistake. Adam had to learn his inadequacy or incompleteness by God's bringing the animals to him. That was a, a visible lesson to Adam. He wanted to teach Adam that it was not good that Adam be alone, so he brought all the animals in front of him for Adam to name. There were always two of them, male and female. And that impressed upon Adam, there's something wrong with my estate, something incomplete about my condition and place. And only then did God create the, the woman for Adam. I'm struck that uh, God often works that way. That's a pattern that God has uh, worked for his children throughout history, that he doesn't just give them things and provide for them, but he always shows us and makes us consciously aware of our need. And, and then often after that, he gives. An effective way of teaching. Yeah. And all of these things, again, they relate back to 
the picture of Christ and his church and how the two are necessary for each other. And I guess just as a question, I guess for the both, for the two of you, Jeff and, and Prof, as married men, do you see that marriage um, brings out the picture of Christ and his church more? That's a living picture and I think a witness to the world. The world around us often doesn't give us the opportunity to speak to it about marriage or about anything else. But they can't help but notice in all our contacts with the world and our daily life that these people stay married for years and years, 50, 60 years. And obviously they treat each other the way husbands should treat their wives and wives should treat their husbands. And they may even ask sometimes in one way or another, what's the explanation of this? And then we better be ready to give the answer. That's the relationship really of Christ and the church. And that gives us an opportunity to witness. But the very way we live in marriage is a witness, a testimony to the world of Jesus Christ and the church. Yeah, and and you talk about the way in which we live in marriage as well. And is there something to be said about well, disobeying God's law leads to issues within marriage and uh, that obedience within marriage leads to a long and good marriage. Is there something to be said to that or is that irrelevant? I think there's definitely something to be said for that. When we walk in God's ways, that itself is a blessing and that becomes the way in which he gives us joy and delight in the circumstances of our life. Marriage now when you go on in your marriage from year to year, you're happy in your marriage, so to speak, and joyful in your marriage, and that has an effect upon your family as well. The children and grandchildren delight to be in your presence, get together with you. That's the way God works out his saving purposes. Yeah, and there's a there's a joy to live in, in obedience to God in, in marriage. And even... Uh, when we talk about that joy as well, it doesn't necessarily have to refer to the earthly sense. The true joy that is in marriage is in Christ and the picture that marriage represents in Christ. And people who are married, especially a long time, speak of that too. That Christ is responsible for the joy in our marriage rather than that we can't stand each other and it's a pain to look at each other over the dinner table. Christ works that so that we may reflect him in the church, which is a privilege and an honor, the main purpose of our marriage after all. So there's definitely that element. So we can talk about the joys of marriage and may we understand marriage as being a necessity as God's people? The rule on the basis of how God created men and women in the beginning in God's own verdict, that it's not good for man to be alone. The rule is marriage. And I think the church has to preach that today, especially with regard to the young people. I understand what's going on in worldly society is delaying marriage, postponing marriage as long as possible for the sake of a good time, apart from the responsibilities of marriage. And the fact is that it's not good to be alone, so that delaying marriage unduly is not wise. We're made to be married. But there are exceptions, and that's dealt with in the great New Testament chapter on marriage, 1 Corinthians 7. After Paul has given instruction in the first verses about 
life together in marriage, particularly the sexual aspect of marriage. He says that he speaks this by permission and not by command, which means he's not commanding everybody to get married. He allows for the exception, but it is an exception. There are some in the church who are not gift who are not gifted with the need for marriage or the desire for marriage and are able to live a single life. Paul, after all, was not married, so he talks about the exception, but you have to be gifted to be single. And then he says, your reason for not being married is that you can devote yourself more fully to the Lord. He doesn't say avoid marriage as much as possible for the sake of living it up and avoiding the responsibilities of marriage in the family. But if you have the gift, then remain single with a view to devoting your life more fully to Christ and to the church. So marriage is the rule, but not the absolute rule. And and staying single as well is not an excuse to enjoy the pleasures of the world, of course. It's easy to make an excuse that you want to, you know, save to have a house. You want to enjoy the single life. But God has given us marriage, and it's something that should not be delayed, as you say. Is there a sense uh, that a man can be married and still living alone? Something is grievously amiss either on the part of the man or the woman or both of them, if that is the situation. But of course, if a man commits adultery, his wife has the right to divorce him, and then he ends up living alone. But it's wrong that he would be in that circumstance. It's also the case that if a man mercilessly and impenitently abuses his wife, he shows in the language of 1 Corinthians 7 that he's not willing to dwell with her. An impenitent abuser is the same as an unbeliever. And he's not willing to live with his wife. He's willing to abuse her, but he's not willing to live with her. So he drives her out of the house and ends up living alone. But of course, it's wrong that he's done that. He shouldn't be in that situation. He should not be abusing his wife. I was thinking, too, along the lines of being married, but uh, the man being more independent and not recognizing his or not living according to his calling. They could you mean they're living under the same roof, but he's really living independently of his of his wife. Is that in a sense living alone? Yes, it's a sin. He's disobeying his calling to love his wife. To to love a woman is to live with her, to share your life with her. And that's a possibility that a man is actually under the roof with his wife, but he doesn't share his life with her. And there again, the great symbol is important. Jesus loves us, not by going off independently from us, but he lives with us by his Holy Spirit and by his word, shares his life with us, takes us into his confidence, and assures us that he's with us. A man who doesn't do that is disobedient to his calling to show forth the symbolism of Christ. And that's something that can happen can trouble a marriage seriously. And to my mind, elders ought to be investigating matters like that on family visitation. Rather than conduct an abbreviated Bible study, they ought to be looking into the condition of the marriage, not only investigate whether he's hitting her, but whether he's living with her. So that's a real danger that you propose. 
If a man is working all the time and then golfing in his spare time so that he's never home, never really involves himself in the raising of the children that way, too, he's not dwelling with her the way he's called to do. Yeah, and again, relating things back to our doctrines as well, if one, one lives independent from the other, that is not testament to the picture of what marriage is. Christ lives in his church and through his church. And when a husband does not do that, he is not picturing the marriage of Christ in his church. He is neglecting that. Christ said on more than one occasion to his disciples who represented the church, I am with you, lo, I am with you till the end of the world. And that's been a comfort to God's people too. I think of lonely people, wives who've been abandoned by their husband or husbands whose wives have left them. They'll cry out, I'm alone. And the comfort that the church brings is Christ is with you. He's never left you and he will never leave you. That's what husbands have to represent to their wives. Yeah, and I, I know that we're kind of hitting our time already, but uh, when resolving issues like that, well, how, how do you go about resolving that? You're, you remind them of, of the fact that Christ is with them. Is that the foundation of your, your helping and your counseling of, of married couples? Yes. So all men, including your husband, forsakes you. Christ is with you. And of course, if the man is still in the house, then the church admonishes too, admonishes him. And that ought to be part of the preaching. We ought not only say to husbands, don't commit adultery, but we ought to say to husbands, live with your wife, share your life with her. She gave herself to you and you gave yourself to her. Now carry it out. So we've had a good conversation for, uh, for an hour. Thanks again for, for sitting down with us and having this conversation, Prof. I think it's been a beneficial time for us. We've learned yeah. a lot and, and had a good good conversation. Good. So thank you for that. Yeah. Welcome back to Hope PR Ministry. My name is Josh Harris, and I'm again sat with Jeff Kalsbeek and Professor David Engelsma. Last week, we, just, we talked about the institution of marriage and that God is the one who instituted marriage. We also talked about the symbol of marriage in that uh, the husband and the wife reflect the marriage of Christ and his church. And today we want to talk about the subject of divorce and remarriage, a very important subject in the church world, one which the whole church world seems to have a great interest and uh, opinion on. Yeah, and if I could reiterate too, Josh, all believing children of God, no matter where their membership is, they have a vested interest in knowing what God has to say in his word about about these things. Yeah, absolutely. So that's uh, our assumption, too. What uh, does he truly say about marriage? Yeah, so, exactly. This is this is God's word, not our opinion, not our, our thoughts. This is God's word. And uh, we want to be faithful to his teaching in Scripture. Professor Engelsman, last time you gave us a definition of marriage derived from the Word of God. Could you give us that definition once again for us to get started? Yes, a biblically-based definition of marriage would be along these lines. Marriage is the divine ordinance for the human race. Notice I mentioned the human race and not only the church. Divine ordinance for the human race consisting of a uniquely intimate relationship between one man, a male, and one woman, a female, they become one flesh, 
for the life of the two, which relationship God instituted as the outstanding symbol of the covenant union between Jesus Christ and his church. That definition takes its lead from the end of Genesis 2, God's institution of marriage and his creation of Adam and Eve as married virtually. From that ordinance, all of the instruction of the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament derives. So, um, essentially, we've discussed the beginning and the end of your definition, Professor Inglesma, uh, the divine ordinance and the symbol of Christ and his church. And now we're going to focus on the section where you say it's a lifelong relationship. In Genesis 2, why don't we read those two verses? Genesis 2... And that's uh, 23 and 24. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. It's particularly the part of verse 24 that speaks of the man cleaving unto his wife and going on to state that they shall be one flesh that describe what marriage is essentially. It's intimate union and such intimate union as that the two, the male and the female, become one flesh, one human nature. That's the most intimate fellowship. And for that reason, in light of what the Gospels especially go on to say about that intimate union of marriage, that we contend and proclaim and defend, as we're doing on this podcast, that marriage is for life. It's for the life of the two original mates. And in keeping with that, divorce is forbidden, the New Testament makes one exception to that prohibition of divorce, and that is that one or the other of the married couple is guilty of fornication or adultery, a sexual relationship or activity with another than her husband or his wife. And that also includes this intimacy of the original marriage that there may be no remarriage while the original two persons are still living. That's controversial, especially with regard to the remarriage or the possible remarriage of somebody who has been sinned against by a mate on the biblical, and that there's a divorce on the biblical ground for divorce, namely fornication. But I want to show on this broadcast, that even when there is a legitimate divorce on the ground of the adultery of one or the other, remarriage is forbidden. That's clearly taught, especially by the New Testament reflections on marriage, but the impossibility and impermissibility of remarriage, even in the case of fornication, harks back to what was just read out of Genesis chapter 2 
when the two married, God made them one flesh. And that one flesh is indissoluble and unbreakable, even in the case of the adultery of one or the other of the persons. Only God can and only God does dissolve a marriage, and that he does by the death of one or the other of the married persons. So you had mentioned that um, <clears throat> only death can break this, and, and you had also mentioned that uh, marriage is a bond uh, last time rather than a contract, let's say. Um, are there other passages in Scripture that explain Genesis 2 as you are uh, bringing out here? The truth of Genesis 2, is it explained more in other passages of Scripture? There are other passages of Scripture, in fact, many of them in the Gospels and in the Epistles that bring out what is implied in the Genesis 2 account of the institution of marriage and make plain beyond the shadow of a doubt that remarriage, even after the divorce on the ground of fornication, is impermissible and forbidden by the Word of God. But that all is due to the fact that such is the nature of marriage, according to God's institution of it, that God makes the two one flesh. And one flesh is indissoluble except by the strong action of God in the death of one or the other of the married persons. Now, I'd like to demonstrate what I have said about the prominence of reflections on marriage and its lifelong being a bond from the Gospels in the New Testament. I refer, first of all, to Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Let me add, before we read these passages, that there are many passages making this very point that there may be no remarriage while the original couple is living. This matter of divorce and remarriage is not a obscure aspect of the Bible, but it's emphasized, and it's emphasized plainly so that there ought not to be any dispute as to what the Bible teaches. And therefore, there is no excuse for Christians to ignore this aspect of the truth of marriage and for churches to permit people of their membership to remarry after divorce, even on the legitimate ground of divorce. I refer now to the words of Christ himself in Matthew 10, verses 11 and 12. And he saith unto them, his disciples, and in those disciples he says to the disciples of himself down through the ages, that is the church, to the church today also, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Now, the clarity of this passage is such that it's inconceivable that anyone would have any question or doubt or be able to challenge what the Lord teaches here. He forbids remarriage after divorce absolutely. Putting away, of course, refers to divorce. 
and he adds marry another and condemns that as adultery. And then in case anybody should limit what he says to just one of the married persons, he says the same thing about a woman putting away her husband and marrying another. And already this passage makes plain that what we're talking about is not merely some matter of disagreement among different churches, an academic matter. It's a matter of salvation. To commit adultery and go on committing adultery after remarriage is to consign oneself to damnation. Impenitent adulterers are lost. So this is an urgent matter for the church today, and that's our attitude in presenting this discussion concerning the truth of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We take the words of Christ in dead seriousness. In Luke chapter 16, verse 18, you have the same blunt, clear prohibition of divorce and remarriage by our Lord. Luke 16, verse 18. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Now this word of Christ adds something. In the first part of the text you have a man divorcing his wife and marrieth another, and he's living in adultery. The question arises, what about the woman? who has been unjustly divorced by her husband. She has not been guilty of adultery. She has not given him any ground for divorcing her. And re reconciliation with him is impossible because he's married to another. And probably our sentiment would be that poor woman should be permitted to remarry. She has no guilt in the matter and the marital state is shut up to her. But in the second part of Luke 16, verse 18, with regard to that innocent woman who has been mistreated by her husband, who has since remarried, Jesus says, Whoso marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. And because obviously you can't commit adultery by yourself, that same judgment falls upon her should she remarry even if the innocent party so-called remarries after divorce, adultery is the condition of both of them. So I, that, that does seem pretty clear. Um, how, how is that text explained then by those who uh, hold to the innocent party being able to remarry? Those who permit remarriage on other grounds than the adultery of one's mate simply have their mouth shut by your question. They're not paying any attention to what the Bible teaches about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There isn't any conceivable ground for remarriage on the part of those whose divorce was on some other ground than adultery. They simply disregard what Christ and the Bible teaches they fly in the face of the solemn warning that remarriage after their divorce is adultery, and they go on without any submission to the Word of God in the Bible. 
That's what's happening in the vast majority of so-called Christian churches today. They're allowing divorce and then a following remarriage for all kinds of reasons other than divorce, uh, fornication. Simply, if the man gets sick of his wife or the woman finds a nicer husband, they allow the two to divorce and remarry as if there are no consequences and no judgment of God. But there are still some churches, very few, who permit the remarriage of the divorced person whose mate has been guilty of adultery. And they have one biblical passage in support of their teaching. Now that contradicts what we just read in Mark 10 and Luke yeah. 16. But I want to come to that one passage that they hang their hat on, so to speak, to allow the remarriage of the innocent party in a divorce in a moment. That's Matthew 19. We'll look at that in just a moment. Now I want to turn to one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Again, to show that the Bible clearly forbids remarriage after divorce absolutely, unconditionally, and for any reason whatsoever. And that chapter is 1 Corinthians 7. I think in the previous podcast, I went through that chapter section by section and explained the various sections in this all-important chapter on divorce and remarriage and on marriage itself. But now I want to look just at verse 39, the last verse of the chapter. And the question before us is this, does the Bible clearly forbid divorce and forbid remarriage after divorce while an original mate is still living? Verse 39 it is as though the apostle wraps up everything he's been teaching about the permanency of marriage in this whole chapter. This is what he says. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. As is the case with every passage in the New Testament that you can locate, this too goes back to Genesis 2. What the Apostle says here is grounded in the fact that a man and a woman leave their father and mother and cleave to their mate, cleave, strong, intimate connection. The two of them are made one flesh by God. Because of that, because of how God instituted marriage and because of the unique intimacy of marriage, the two are not two anymore, they are one flesh, the Apostle says what he says in the first part of verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 7. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. Notice another thing about this terminology. Marriage is not a contract. It isn't a contract into, into which the two of them go, which they make and which they can break. But a husband and wife are bound it's a bond, and it's a binding by God. As long as her husband liveth. Now, who can't understand this? I dare say that five-year-old Sunday school students in any church could understand the first part of verse 39 in 1 Corinthians 7. 
as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, now we come to the ground of, re of remarriage, death, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. Some people might well be listening to this now, and they are listening to the verse which you just read from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, um, regarding the death of the husband. So the wife is bound by the law um, as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead. And some people might be saying the death is not literal when, when one is divorced, it is as if that husband is dead. How do we respond to that? Well, how do you respond to that, Prof? And then there's another uh, verse in Romans 7. It says, Romans 7, verse 2, For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So there's a couple passages there that speak of... Um, being bound by the law to the husband. That Romans passage is a passage that I did not quote, and it's applicable. And the reference to that Romans 7 passage brings out how often and how clearly the Bible speaks to the issue of the lifelong nature of marriage and the impermissibility of remarriage while an original mate lives. This is a subject that is dear to the heart of the Holy Spirit because of its importance in the church. This is stated and commanded again and again and again. But I want to take up now that pathetic explanation of death in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39 that tries to make of that death a fictitional death or a symbolical death in order to permit remarriage after divorce after all. And shocking though it is, and painful as it is to a reformed man who feels brotherhood with Presbyterians, our Presbyterian relatives at the Westminster Confession, at the Westminster Assembly, tried to give that explanation to death in chapter 24, section 4 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'll read that. Is it 4 or section 5? Yes, I was mistaken. It's section 5. Westminster Confession of Faith, 24, 5. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract. And there already you see the Presbyterians going off the track. Marriage is not a contract. If it were a contract, we could break it for more or less solemn reasons. But in Genesis 2, the two shall be one flesh. It's a bond, not a contract. And a contract is something entered into by the two persons themselves. We make a contract with each other. Marriage is not instituted by our action of a contract, but by God's action of binding the two. But that, by the way, marriage, adultery, or fornication committed after a contract, being 
detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. And here comes the important part, the part that we're interested in. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Now, there's any number of criticisms of that second part of the Westminster Confession of Faith 5, 24, 5. And the first is the recognition by the divines at the Westminster Assembly that the Bible forbids remarriage except in the case of death. They had to recognize that. They couldn't ignore that. They had to do something with that. And what they did was to make the death that Christ and the apostles are speaking about a fictitional death. But in Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7, the apostle is not talking about a make-believe death. He's referring to an actual physical death that puts the husband or the wife in the ground so that he's not married to the wife or to the husband any longer. But what stands out to me is that even though they were of a mind to allow remarriage after divorce for the innocent party, they had to take note of the Bible's teaching that only death allows for a second marriage. Yeah. And then they worked with that to make it a fictional death. And that was inexcusable on their part. I can understand that. All human sensibility would say about the innocent party, he or she ought to be able to remarry. But the Word of God does not permit that, and we're bound not by our sensibilities, but by the Word of God. Death in 1 Corinthians 7 and in Romans 7 is literal, physical, actual death. And that's the way every reader of the Bible would understand that also. So you would say it doesn't even need to be proved. It, it's uh, it's that's the way that you read it. It's the normal reading of Scripture. I would say I would put it yes. I would put it this way: First Corinthians seven verse thirty nine commands us to take the death referred to there as literal physical death, and in light of Genesis two in particular, the bond. The one flesh is dissolved by death. It isn't dissolved by anything else, but it is dissolved by death. So death in 1 Corinthians 7.39 simply commands to be interpreted and understood as physical death. And the importance for me of the Westminster Confession of Faith 24.5 is its indication that the Westminster divines recognized that. And it's shameful. They were honorable men, but it was shameful how they got rid of the teaching of 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, about death and death alone allowing for remarriage. That was inexcusable on their part. It's interesting that uh, the three forms of unity in the Reformed churches don't speak of marriage and uh, divorce at all. Is that correct? It's 
only in the Westminster? I believe that that's right. The reform creeds that bind us do not go into the matter of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So we're not bound by such an article as is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. In fact, it may be a weakness of our creeds that they don't say anything at all about the nature of marriage and the permanency of marriage. And I have entertained the possibility to present a well-thought-out overture to our synod to add an article to one of the creeds about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We may do that. The church may do that. And I think it would be well worthwhile. It may even be urgent in our day of the laxity of many with regard to marriage to include that in our creed. It would fit in the Belgic Confession somewhere. Now the question was raised by one of you a little while ago. What do churches say in response to the gospel's testimony that Marriage is for life. There's divorce permitted on one ground, adultery, but no remarriage, even in the case of adultery in a marriage. And I responded that many churches, with their disregard for the authority of the Bible, simply pay no attention at all to what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage. That's a mark that a church is becoming a false church if they pay no attention to the authority of Scripture with regard to such an important matter as divorce and remarriage, they show that they are losing the mark of the true church that consists of faithfulness to the Word of God. But there are some nominally conservative Presbyterian and Reformed churches that do have a passage of Scripture that they appeal to in support of their teaching that the innocent party may remarry. There's one such passage in the Bible, and that's in Matthew 19, and I'd like to turn to that now. What are those verses? Uh, Matthew professor? 19, really verses 1 through 9. Maybe a little bit too long to read the whole thing. But. Yes, the important passage in the section Matthew 19 verses 1 through 9 is verses 8 and 9. I can read those. The disciples of Jesus ask him about something that took place in the Old Testament. Moses commanded to give a writing of divorcement and to put away the wife of Israelite men. Verse 7. Then Jesus responded, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, suffered them to do that, tolerated it, permitted it, because they were hard-hearted. I've had couples already in my pastoral ministry raise that matter. They wanted to divorce and get another mate, and when I showed them the passages we've just already read, they were familiar enough with the Bible to say Moses allowed divorce and remarriage in the Old Testament. Jesus noted that in Matthew 19, and my response was, Moses permitted that to hard-hearted people. Is that the kind of person you are? 
Do you expect to go to heaven as a hard-hearted person? And that quieted them. But now I continue. Verse 9 of Matthew 19. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. The argument is that the exception clause in verse 9 applies to divorce and the remarriage that inevitably follows. So that the teaching of Matthew 19 verse 9 is that a man may not divorce his wife or remarry except it be for fornication. But if he does remarry after fornication, he's not committing adultery. That's the argument. Now the question is, to what does the exception clause in Matthew 19 apply? Does it apply to both the divorce and the remarriage, or does it apply only to the divorce? In Matthew 19, verse 9, itself makes plain that Jesus is giving an exception only to his prohibition of putting away or divorce, and not to the remarriage that inevitably follows. The exception clause in the text itself follows the prohibition of divorce. Jesus is saying, I prohibit divorce except for fornication. Then he adds the matter of remarriage because when people divorce, inevitably they also remarry. And he's noting that, but he's not giving an exception to the prohibition of remarriage. He's only giving an exception to the prohibition of divorce. And what makes that even clearer and more authoritative is that all the other texts in the Bible, many of which we've read, absolutely forbid remarriage. There is no exception clause in any of those passages. But even more striking is the, the last part of Matthew 19, verse 9. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. Now the first part of Matthew 19, verse 9, proposes the case of a man who has divorced his wife, not on the ground of fornication, and married another. That's his, that's his state. He has illegitimately divorced and remarried. The woman, therefore, is the innocent party. And if the explanation of Matthew 19, verse 9 is correct, that there's an exception in the case of fornication, that exception applies to her. Her husband has divorced her and remarried, not on the ground of her adultery. He's the guilty party. She's the innocent party. Now, if adultery is a ground for remarriage, Jesus should say, and therefore the woman who has been divorced may marry, or something like that. But instead he says, even the one who has been put away, the innocent party, may not remarry, and if she does, she commits adultery. Well, Matthew 19, verse 9 itself makes plain that the exception applies only to divorce. It gives the one ground for divorce and denies the right of remarriage.
Prof, you, you talk about here a guilty party and an innocent party. Is there such thing as an innocent, innocent party? An innocent party would be a, mar- a man or a woman who virtually was sinless in the marriage and never mistreated his wife or she mistreated her husband so that from that point of view there is no innocent party. But the language of the Bible concerning the innocent party is the one who has not been guilty of fornication or adultery. That, that is the case. There are men who commit adultery whereas their wife has been faithful to him or the other way around. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the innocent party. But your observation is correct. Even though a man may not have committed adultery against his wife, he may have treated her so abusively that he is not an innocent party when she divorces him. He bears a lot of the blame. So much for the one passage of Scripture that is appealed to as giving the right of remarriage in the case of divorce. But what has to be brought to the attention of the church world today is that if there is a ground for remarriage after divorce, it's strictly limited to the case of adultery. If the Bible does give a ground for remarriage, there is one ground, the sexual unfaithfulness of one's mate. I've shown from Matthew 19, verse 9, that in fact the Bible doesn't give a ground for that, even in the case of the so-called innocent party. But if it did, Matthew 19, verse 9, would limit the remarriage to the case of a woman or a man whose mate has been guilty of adultery. It doesn't allow for divorce on any, uh, remarriage on any other ground. There's one other passage of Scripture that I want to look at to show that the Bible itself forbids the so-called innocent party to remarry. That's back in 1 Corinthians 7, and now verses 10 and 11. I'm convinced that in the whole discussion of the matter of the legitimacy of remarriage in the case of an adulterer in the marriage, this passage has been largely overlooked. And so I'm happy to have the opportunity to call attention to what 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11 have to say on that issue of the remarriage of the so-called innocent party. That's 10 and 11. You want me to read that? 10 and 11. Would you read it? And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Notice carefully verse 10 introduces this section as the teaching not of the apostle. He means not first of all. I'm not bringing this in for the first time. But the teaching of the Lord. So he's going to teach something that the Lord Jesus Christ expressly taught in his ministry. Where did he teach it? Mark 10, Luke 16, verse 18, and Matthew 19. Jesus taught, let not the wife depart from her husband. Paul didn't come up with that. Jesus taught that. We've already 
showed that from the Gospels. And then the Lord also taught, but and if she depart, so there is a permissible departure. The rule is no departure from your husband. That is no divorce. If we could stop there just for a minute, um, that there is something about um, departure meaning divorce rather than uh, an abusive husband driving a woman away. But we're going to get to that later at another time, but just right now. Departure here is divorce. Yeah. That's the language of the New Testament with regard to divorce. Whatever legal form that takes, who's ever involved, the prohibition of Paul following the Lord is the wife may not divorce her husband. And then he immediately adds, if she does, which implies there is a lawful ground in the church of Christ for a woman to divorce her husband. And that's something that also was taught by the Lord. This is not an invention of the apostle. but He's dealing with what the Lord Jesus taught during his ministry. And in the light of Matthew 19, Luke 16, and Mark 10, we know what that ground is. Her husband has been a fornicator or an adulterer. And then she may depart. The beginning of verse 11, let's establish that, permits a Christian woman to depart from her husband, to divorce her husband. Well, that one ground for departure or divorce is adultery. Now the question is, specifically with regard to the controversial passage, Matthew 19, verse 9, may she remarry. She legitimately departs. She legitimately divorces on the ground of her husband's adultery. And the apostle expressly states she has two options when she departs from her husband. Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. One alternative is not remarry, is it? She has to remain yeah. unmarried. Paul said so. And that sheds light back on the passage we were just talking about, Matthew 19, verse 9, where the question is, does that passage give a ground for divorce and remarriage, or does it give a ground only for divorce and not for remarriage? And Paul makes plain that Matthew 19, verse 9, is only giving an exception to the prohibition of divorce. Because Paul says about the teaching of the Lord in Matthew 19, verse 9, that the woman has to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. I regard 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11 as an extraordinarily important passage with regard to the general matter of divorce and remarriage and specifically with regard to the issue does adultery permit remarriage as well as divorce or only divorce and that's this passage i think has been overlooked largely even by us it ought to become more prominent than it is it's an important part of the apostles teaching in first corinthians 7 it sheds light on matthew 19 verse 9 
and it addresses the great issue of divorce and remarriage. So God alone joined two together. Only God then can break. That's uh, been established by Scripture. And sins and uh, even divorce, they can strain a marriage, right? But, right. Uh, but they can't break that bond. That's, uh, that seems to be a very significant truth that nothing can break that bond except for God himself. And that reflects back on Genesis 2, verse 24. A man cleaves yeah. to his wife and they become one flesh. That's what one flesh means. Positively, that one flesh is extraordinarily lovely and pleasant and delightful for the Christian man and his wife. There's nothing like that, not even the bond between a man and his father and mother. Beautiful thing. We, we mustn't resent that they too become one flesh. When things are as they ought to be in a Christian marriage, the man and the woman would say, we've never thought about dissolving this bond. It's the main earthly relationship that there can possibly be. But everything the New Testament says negatively against divorce and remarriage goes back to Genesis 2. They're one flesh. They may try to dissolve it, and they can't. So if they cannot dissolve it, or they may not try to dissolve it, divorce itself, obviously our view of divorce is, it's negative, it's the negative, marriage is the positive, divorce is the negative. May we say that divorce is a sin, that we separate the husband and the wife, and they do not live together, they do not dwell together, as is commanded when they are married? It definitely is sinful. The question is, who's responsible for that division? And I suppose implied in the question is the matter of abuse, which is on the foreground. If a man abuses his wife, and by that I mean serious mistreatment, threatening her health and welfare and even her life, even then she isn't leaving him when they live separately, but he's driving her away. The sin, the fault, is all with him. He is doing his best to destroy that intimate bond that exists between him and his wife. So, taking your question head-on with its implications, if a woman is living outside the house where, his, where her brute, abusive husband is living, always with the knowledge and advice of the consistory, it's not something she does on her own, and the, the cause is abuse on his part. She hasn't left him, to use the biblical language, but he has driven her out. And the sin is his. Yeah, that would be a, a subject that we should get back to uh, in a, at another episode, too, because that's an important topic that we should yeah. talk about, too. Yeah. If oh. I may, I'd like to appeal to a peculiar source for a Reformed man on this subject of divorce and remarriage. And that source is a book by G.K. Chesterton, a thinker and a writer probably best known for his Father Brown fictional writings, 
But in his defense of orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton addressed the longing of some men to have more than one wife, whether at the same time or serially, and he addresses that temptation. A quote, just a brief passage from Orthodoxy, which brings out that the main concern that a believing husband or wife ought to have is not the desire for another woman or for another man because that would be more attractive and pleasurable, but he ought to live in the consciousness that it's a wonder that he has one wife at all or a husband and take pleasure in what God gives him. I quote, Chesterton, I never mix in the common murmur of that rising generation against monogamy because no restriction on sex seems so odd <laughs> and unexpected as sex itself. And then he keeps on, keeping to one woman is a small price for so much as seeing one woman. To complain that I could only be married once was like complaining that I had only been born once. It was incommensurate with the terrible excitement of which one was talking. It showed not an exaggerated sensibility to sex, but a curious insensibility to it. A man is a fool who complains that he cannot enter Eden by five different gates at once. I think that's an acute, everyday, but biblically-based observation about our being satisfied, if I may use that term, with our wife or with our husband. Yeah. It's amazing that we have one. Uh, why were men in the Old Testament allowed to have many wives? There was polygamy. And polygamy because the truth of marriage developed. In the Old Testament, the truth of marriage was not so clearly taught and so clearly bound upon the lives of the men of the, especially the men of the Old Testament, as is the case today. It's along the lines, the explanation is along the lines of what Jesus said to the Pharisees when they pointed out that Moses suffered men of Israel to divorce their wife and have another one. For the hardness of your hearts, he did that. The New Testament sheds more light on the institution of marriage and makes plain clearly that a man may only have one wife. But I do point out in addition to the truth of the development of marriage in the doctrine and life of the church that what was permitted in the Old Testament was polygamy, having more than one wife, as David did, the man after God's own heart. Two things about that. First of all, it caused no end of trouble in the life of the man who had more than one wife. David had all kinds of troubles in his marriages. His children were jealous of each other and killed each other. And David himself suffered that the effects of that jealousy when he had to flee for his life from his son Absalom. They were all vying for the crown. That first of all. Even though God tolerated polygamy in the Old Testament, he chastised even a David for departing from the truth of marriage. 
And that's something else Christ said to the Pharisees when they appealed to Moses' toleration of remarriage and toleration of more than one wife. From the beginning, it was not so. We have to go back to the beginning. God didn't make half a dozen Eves for Adam, but one Eve for one Adam. That was the institution, and that's what governs, should have governed even the behavior of the men of the Old Testament, and certainly does govern our lives today. So that's one thing about polygamy. And another thing is this. There's a difference between polygamy, having more than one wife, which was tolerated, and taking another man's wife for yourself. That God did not tolerate, even in the Old Testament. When David went to bed with Bathsheba, another man's, another man's wife, God came down on his beloved David like a ton of bricks. What a, what a chastisement for David's adultery. That was not permitted. Polygamy was because of the relative darkness of Old Testament history, but not adultery. Yeah, that's an interesting point. That yeah. God differentiated even there. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, it was it was a little darker for them with regards to the polygamy. And for us in the New Testament, living in the New Testament, it is clearer for us as Christ has come and the fullness of the uh, the doctrine of marriage is manifest to us that it is Christ and his church. He never puts us away um, and he upholds marriage. There's no sin on his part that we can divorce him and, and there's there's faithful. plenty of yeah. he's faithful. Yeah, yeah. And quick to forgive. There's more light on other matters too, but more light on the matter of marriage in the New Testament than there was in the Old Testament. So you can the, recognize that development of the truth in life of the people of God. So then uh, the argument that God could be tolerating divorce and remarriage in the New Testament like he tolerated polygamy in the Old Testament? That argument does not hold. It's one thing for two reasons. First of all, the light now is clear. We must walk in the light, and that light is expressed forcefully and plainly by Jesus and by his apostles. No divorce except for fornication and no remarriage in any case. That is very significant, too, that the, you pointed out that the Lord himself taught us, his church, on this. He had opportunity to, to speak to this when he lived on the earth, and he did. And what you just mentioned about Christ and the church applies, too. It's clearly manifested today that our earthly marriages in the church are a living symbol and testimony about the union of Christ and the church. And when you corrupt that, that earthly picture, that all reflects on the reality of Christ and the church. If we can have two wives, or if we may divorce our wife and marry another, especially the latter, that would carry with it the implication Christ may divorce us and marry another. At least that would be the witness we're giving. We give a witness by our behavior in marriage. 
If I would divorce my wife and marry another, that would be a witness to the ungodly, not only that we don't revere marriage any more than they do, but that the reality can be like that too. Christ could divorce his church and marry another. So the argument doesn't hold at all that because polygamy was tolerated or divorce and remarriage was tolerated in the Old Testament, that can also be the case today. How about from another point of view, uh, Professor, from the point of view of there are many things in the life of God's children on this earth and many sins and there are seemingly not eternal consequences for those sins and we all make mistakes but God is merciful does this aspect of his revelation have to be obeyed in in such a strict way or isn't God merciful and allow his people to, uh, if they make a mistake in marriage, to find another spouse. That is how the argument goes nowadays. My response to that is, first of all, when a man divorces his wife and remarries, he's living in the state of adultery. That was the language of the gospel passages that we read earlier. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. The present tense of the verb is used. Goes on living in adultery. Now, how can you have fellowship with God and entertain the hope of heaven if you go on deliberately and impenitently committing adultery? It's one thing that we sin every day and ask forgiveness every day, and don't make up our mind we're going to continue living in that sin, that's one thing. It's another thing to make a decision and then to carry it out that you go on breaking the seventh commandment impenitently. And the second response is, in the nature of the case, marriage is of greater importance than many of the matters concerning which we sin daily. Marriage is the living symbol of Christ and the church. Marriage is vital to the welfare of the church. Marriage is basic to the family, and the Christian church consists of families. So when a man goes on committing adultery in a remarriage, he's got his hand raised against the very church of Jesus Christ. And that takes form often, in the case of remarriage, in the ruin of the children. This is urgent. Yeah, that's a good distinction. And you mentioned the covenant as well, Prof, when you were speaking then. Is there is there anything that we can appeal to within the covenant itself with regards to um, to your counseling of couples in that those situations, the covenant children that they have, and as believers, believing parents, they also are within the covenant and they reflect in the marriage of Christ and their church. They should be unconditionally loving their spouse and I think generally in response to what I catch in your question the counseling we give and the preaching we do on marriage in the church ought to pattern itself after the relationship of Christ in the church that's Ephesians chapter 5 another grand passage on marriage in the New Testament our marriages must be patterned after the relationship of Christ and the church. 
As Christ loved the church, so am I to love my wife. As the church submits to Christ, my wife is supposed to submit to me. And you use the word unconditional. And that does apply to our marriages. We find out soon enough that our mate is imperfect. And then we think unsatisfactory to us. But our commitment to each other in marriage is unconditional not based upon what a fine man the husband is or what a fine woman the wife is. We've sworn an oath, and that's unconditional. The only possibility of the divorcing of the two is fornication, as we've seen, and the marriage lasts a lifetime. So just as Christ lives unconditionally with us, we're to live unconditionally with our mate. And an absence of that unconditional love then will inevitably put that that marriage on it on the path to divorce, would you say? Yes, and that comes back to marriage being a contract or a bond. If marriage is a contract, it's conditional. When two human beings make a con- contract, they promise to do something if the other one will fulfill his obligation. And if he doesn't, the contract is broken. Westminster went off the rails when it talked about marriage as a contract. It's an unconditional bond. It is interesting how the Lord leads us back to the that truth of unconditional love. We, we confess that as Reformed believers that God has loved us unconditionally, and then God, in in our lifetime, he brings that to the forefront of our minds too that we we must love unconditionally the same that we confess of god that that we are to do the same that's yeah. how we are to love one another and in our spouses yeah and we're we're admonished to do so to live in love and peace and that can only be done with christ at the center of that relationship that's another necessary point the power of all this in doing what marriage requires of us or what God requires of us in marriage is astounding grace. Otherwise, everybody's marriage would fly apart. I had uh, one other question, too, about uh, putting asunder um, from 1 Corinthians six sixteen. Um, isn't God saying that adultery, quote-unquote, puts asunder when one becomes one body with a harlot. A man can't be one body with a harlot and with his wife, can he? The key word in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16 is body. You will notice it's not the word flesh. The mere sexual act with a whore is serious enough. A man becomes one body with her but he doesn't become one flesh with her, so there's no marriage. He's one flesh only with his wife. There I, there I see the verbal inspiration of the Bible. I delight in that text and that word. If Paul had been careless, he could have said, since sex with somebody resembles marriage, a man becomes one flesh with a whore. And that would have raised all kinds of problems one flesh with a whore, and at the same time with your wife? Does the mere sexual act constitute marriage? Of course it doesn't. But it is, it is becoming one body. 
not one flesh. Well, thanks again, Prof, for uh, taking the time to sit down with us and uh, talk about divorce and remarriage. It's a very important subject, and uh, I hope that we've we've helped others understand this. And I feel personally, I've I've learned a good amount as well. And I'm sure Jeff, you you would agree. Um, yes, very much. Yeah. yeah. So, I commend you for your work on behalf of the spread of the truth with regard to marriage in particular.